following podcast was recorded the morning of Friday, November 6th, 2020. To hear the podcast in real time, you can sign up for a free trial at arborresearch.com or biancoresearch.com or by emailing Gus Handler directly at gus.handler at arborresearch.com. You can also call Arbor Research and Trading at 1-800-606-1872. Thanks for your time and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the latest edition of Talking Data. Our Talking Data series offers timely insights into the macro market themes along with macro data and its impact on the economy and markets. I'm Kristen Radish of Arbor Research and Trading and I will be your host today. Our presenters are Jim Bianco of Bianco Research and Ben Breitholtz of Arbor Data Science. Today we will review the three big stories of the week, the election, the Fed meeting, and the payroll report. Jim, we're going to get started with you. Um, why don't you start us off with the election and its impacts on the market? Yeah, thanks, Kristen. I do want to just keep it on the impact of the markets uh, and not a broader political impact. And I think that the takeaway word for the week for the markets is divided government. Even if Trump wins, which does not look likely, you'd still have divided government because you'd have the House still remaining Democrat. Historically, the divided government has always produced the best set of market returns uh, because it slows down the pace of regulation, it slows down the pace of new laws, and that seems to be the most pro-business friendly environment that you would have. And that looks like what you're gonna have now. And when I say that, I'll just give you a quick numbers as it stands as we record this podcast. <clears throat> 96 of the 100 Senate seats have been settled. Uh, they've either been called or they weren't up for re-election, and it's 48-48 Democrat-Republican. There's four outstanding. All four of them are GOP incumbent seats. All four of them, the GOP leads in those. In um, Alaska and in North Carolina, the GOP has a pretty good lead, but they're waiting on final mail-in ballots through next week, and they'll probably be called, and then you'll be 50-48 Republican. And it looks like the two seats in Georgia are going to go to a January 5th runoff because neither candidate got more than 50%. Although, if you add up all of the Republican votes versus all the Democrat votes, because there was multiple candidates in those races, there was more Republican votes for the Senate than there was Democrat votes. So it looks like, or the betting is, that the, the Senate should, should remain Republican. On the House side, it's interesting to note that the Republicans actually picked up seats on the House side, not enough to change it, but enough to make it potentially the narrowest majority since the New Deal. This is basically in 80 or 90 years of one party over the other party. So while it'll still be a Democrat House, it'll be very, very close. So they can only afford to lose maybe five or 10 votes on any election, the Democrats, because they're the majority, um, and still pass uh, their legislation. This is music to the market's ears because it says, you know, a slowing of regulations, a slowing of new rules um, and the like. And I'll conclude before I turn it over to Ben for some thoughts with my one fun stat that I, found, I stumbled across yesterday. If it is a divided government, Joe Biden will be the first incoming, incoming first term Democrat to not have an all Democrat House and Senate to go with him since Grover Cleveland in 1884. So this will be new because usually when a Democrat comes in, Obama, um, you know, in 2008, so does the House and the Senate go Democrat, but this will be 
something we haven't seen in about 150 years. Yeah, and there's there's so many confusing statistics out there too. I mean, I think that's obviously fascinating, and uh, the divided government uh, theory and concept makes a lot of sense to me. With on the flip side, it's wild that Biden is likely going to get the highest percentage of um, uh, the popular vote of any challenger since FDR in 1932. Um, uh, so it's it's you know it's on one side it looks like there's some you know some healthiness in terms of the vote base for. For Biden, but obviously in electoral college, it gets uh, that's where things get a little more dicey. Um, but I agree, the divided government um, I think is is reverberating through markets. What's really wild is that we've seen such a huge drop in implied volatility uh, across everything. So that goes from high yield credit to gold to crude oil to the S and P 500. And I think what's really happened is that the options market. The release of that uncertainty, uh, which the markets have taken really well in stride, has caused the dealer hedging uh, to really kind of reverse and unwind, which has allowed treasuries, you know, to rally, and, and more importantly, it's allowed equities to really pop. So I'm curious uh, now that we'll get further removed from that, how much can that really continue? I don't think that the huge, the really strong drive into equities is really going to continue in the same fashion. And we're going to get really back to the stories that Jim and I have been kind of talking right uh, most about, which is kind of the, there's there are some wrinkles, issues here, especially on like the labor side to be concerned about going forward uh, for the markets to be watching. And those will be uh, potentially roadblocks. So it's not going to be all, rally all the time, that kind of reaction function is going to be probably mostly short-lived. I, I, I agree. You know, uh, just a quick comment, and then we'll move on to our next topic. Um, as far as the strong rally in the market goes, uh, we've, we forgot that last week, the S&P was down 5.6% for its worst week since March. This week, I don't know what the total number is, but it's almost completely reversed it for its best week since April. And as we talk right now, it appears that the S&P is within a handful of points of where it was two Fridays ago. So we had a big down, a big up, and we're right back to where we started from. So it's been a really fun roller coaster ride. The point being, we haven't established a trend. We haven't broken a trend. We haven't established a new trend. We're still kind of just biding our time, and we're going to try and see which way the market goes next. My guess is it continues to do this kind of meandering sideways thing. Doesn't sell off hard, doesn't take out the September 2nd high, and you know, tune into a future podcast and we'll tell you where it's <laughs> gonna go next. Uh, Kristen, how about our next topic? Yes, Ben, why don't you start us off with a takeaway from the Fed meeting yesterday? For me, it, you know, it was mostly a snooze fest. I think the big thing was that Powell, there wasn't really much to talk about, which is kind of a mission accomplished for him out of the press conference. The, you know, the story, and I think Jim was talking about this yeah, yesterday a lot, was that you know, they're still there to swoop in uh, you know, if needed, be it the credit facility or to you know, extend maturities out the curve. So that backstop, that potential Fed put has been a part of the market rally. Maybe it's not you know, the biggest part of it, but it's definitely a part of the equity market rally that drop in you know, long and yields initially and I, the dampening in volatility. So as we go from this kind of focus on fiscal, now we're kind of back to monetary support that does foster low volatility, does help risk at, you know, asset prices. That's kind of become the focus again. And if we look at the Federal Reserve's communication, especially over the past number of weeks or months, uh, Powell even drove home harder 
the degree that they are focusing on employment and really keeping this um, market uh, from functioning correctly, um, as well as improving the employment situation. So they're really going to remain, uh, you know, uber dovish. And the percentage of communications going to employment and overall household well-being is now over twice as much as their discussion of inflation. And even the same thing for financial stability. We've never really seen that kind of situation uh, historically. In addition, they're talking very short term. And you know, I have a chart that I like to show that shows long-term versus short-term discussions, you know, their outlooks, and they are the most short-term in Powell's tenure. So they are focusing on market developments, you know, the short-term economic data as as much as they have, you know, have been um, in years. And again, the most they've done in Powell's tenure, which means that they're they've got a quick reaction function and they could swoop in at any moment. And I think that's what makes the market feel you know, so tranquil. Yeah, I, I'd agree with a lot of that. And I would throw in that from the Paul commentary yesterday, my takeaway was nothing happened yesterday, no change in policy, but our fingers close to the trigger, if need be, we'll pull it and we will provide support for the market. Paul said they're not out of ammunition. They've got plenty more to do. Uh, it's all the same stuff, you know, just do more QE, maybe institute yield curve control but they're ready to come at a moment's notice. Yeah, he did talk about it. And it's very clear. Well, they changed they changed their mandate um, priorities, you know, in September, and that they're, they, they are emphasizing more the employment thing. Also keep in mind, too, that Powell came out and said uh, a true statement, of course, in that one of the strongest sectors of the uh, economy is housing. Housing has really recovered from COVID and it's doing well. And then Paul said, that's because of low interest rates. In other words, Paul's, I did it. It's all me. We fixed housing single-handedly. Okay, if you're going to go with that idea that it is about how uh, interest rates and low mortgage rates that is single-handedly supported housing, you're not going to tolerate a rise in rates uh, because you're going to think that that's going to undo the one big sector of the economy. Although I personally would disagree with that. I think that there's been a, a preference shift that people want to move more suburban and exurban and get more naturally social distance with the way that they live, which is what we've seen with a big shift in the housing market as well, too. And that may not be necessarily just that rates are low. That doesn't help it, though. But there's more going on there than just low rates. But if the Fed wants to say that, that, that you know, they're responsible for the housing market being fixed because of low rates, if interest rates continue to trend higher, and that's been my call through the middle of next year, they're going to react to that. And I think that that's something we'll have to watch as we go forward. So he set the stage for future action is what I saw, not present action. Ben, you got any uh, uh, final comments on the Fed? No, I, I think that I think that is really the mantra going forward. Uh, and as the as we get through the election and then you know eventually refocus back on back on fiscal policy and maybe they'll pull away some of this whole fed put concept but it's going to be interesting to see how much the curve here can uh you know will steepen and how much long and yields will be willing to to rise you know one thing i'm watching really closely are those inflation expectations especially across the globe if you look at how they change 10 year break uh, inflation break evens on a rolling 3 month basis that they were, you had over 80% of them up till you know, a few months ago that had rebounded nicely out of the COVID-19 bottom. Now we're about to see a cross back below 50% of all the you know, economies 
uh, inflation break-even is falling back below 50%, which usually doesn't bode very well for the inflation picture, um, doesn't really bode well for the long end of the curve. So while I agree for sure, long-term, it seems like yields are going to go higher. Over the very short term, it's going to, I think that the what you kind of said, Jim, with the equity market kind of staying sideways, treasuries kind of yields potentially, uh, I think would be, uh, you know, fit into that too, in that it's not going to be a quick move to higher yields. There could be some uh, issues here uh, in the next couple weeks, months to keep a lid on them a little bit. Just one final thought for you on the uh, Fed. Um, Judy Shelton is still hanging out there with Chris Waller to be Fed governors. If Trump loses, it's been argued that it increases her chance of being passed by a lame duck Senate because the knock on her was she was going to be political and do whatever the administration wanted. Well, with a Biden administration and a Senate that's Republican and a divided government like that, that it would give the Republicans cover to pass her nomination. That's that's all I'm saying. I'm not going to. Uh, as you know, I've, I've been a supporter of Judy Shelton, and I think she'll be just fine as a Fed governor. But I think if Trump had won, it would have lessened the chance that she would have been passed. But now that he's lost, he would have won it. On the other side, for the Fed, um, with a Biden administration, assuming that we have one, this probably pushes out Liz Warren as Treasury Secretary because the Senate has got to approve her but probably increases the chances of Lael Brainerd, who's been lobbying for the job, who's a Fed governor, to actually get the job. Now, I've not been a fan of Lael Brainerd, but that doesn't matter. But I do think that she might get the job, and that would open up another seat for the uh, for the Fed. So those are kind of some of the inside baseball things. I don't know if how many of them are true, but they're worth mentioning just to kind of think about in the next coming weeks, especially the Shelton thing. Once Congress returns next week and everything is settled down, do they try and push her nomination through in the lame duck session? Jim, for our last topic today, um, can you please talk about the payroll report, what it told us today? Yeah, I think the big takeaway for me on the payroll report <clears throat> is the slowing momentum. Uh, from the 4 million jobs that we created in July, every month has seen less jobs created, 670,000 jobs in September to 620,000 jobs in October. There is still 10.9 million people that are still unemployed now versus pre-pandemic. With that slowing momentum, it is going to take a while in order to get everybody their job back uh, anytime soon. This is what the Fed sees, and this is why the Fed is willing to act that their, their, their number one priority is those 11 million people gotta get their jobs back. That is absolutely right. We do have to get their jobs back but hopefully not at a cost of inflation or, or market instability or anything. To date, we have not had that. So my takeaway on that has been the slowing momentum. I know the unemployment rate fell a full percentage point from 7.9 to 6.9, but a lot of that is also, again, people leaving the workforce, not looking for jobs. And then finally, on the, on the payroll report, it is somewhat backward looking because as we found out yesterday, the U.S. set another record with COVID cases at 116,000 and that there's the potential for re-lockdowns. Um, we had a chart in news clips today in our What We're Reading section of open table from Ireland and from Germany. It was an economist story where they were at 100% were, were closed. Then they went to 50% closed. 
And now they're back to 100% closed on all their restaurants because of the lockdowns that have been coming because of the spiking COVID cases. The fear is that's the U.S.'s future, what we're seeing in, in Europe, and that if we do see that, we're going to see job growth slow even more as we go forward from here. Ben, what yeah. are your thoughts on the payroll numbers? Yeah, like I said, the, the fear, you know, is is coming. And you know, like I said, I think in the last podcast, it's, if you look at all the press conferences and briefings from officials, they are discussing quarantines and lockdowns, you know, at, at over twice the rate they were just a month ago. Even Prisker here in Illinois has been threatening that, that, that they could be coming back uh, in, in quite, you know, full force. Look, you know, there's the state and local budgets are, are you know, got to have a $450 billion hole. And we saw a drop, you know, 268,000 in government employees. You know, a lot of that was the census. Um, but there's going to be potentially a reckoning there that, on the on the public side that could be not so good for, you know, for the, the total environment. Now, the alternative data uh, goes exactly what you're saying, Jim. There, you know, the COVID-19 does have, a, you know, a risk people do respond to that quite quite significantly whereas job listings are you know falling off a little bit um, in terms of actual overall search activity the amount of job applications job seeking looking out for resources that's fallen almost a full standard deviation to a standard deviation and a half below baseline expectations and that just did that within the past couple of weeks and so usually that's got a lead time of you know anywhere between four to six weeks on actual econ data and payroll data and so that you know that shows that this weakening trend that you're talking about, Jim, uh, you know, will very likely persist into November. And uh, you know, I'm with you that the that 10 million jobs that's that's a lot to make up, and we're not going to make it up if we keep getting closer and closer to zero um, on actual payroll gains. And that's going to be, I think, the big story in November um, is we get into this, this holiday season should be seasonal hiring, uh, but we have this slowing job market that's even slow. It will slow more than it has. Um, in October, and I think that you know again that's going to keep the Fed's foot in the, on the pedal, and uh, that doesn't necessarily mean the equity market tumbles like you were saying, Jim. It just means that you know don't don't expect this rip roaring rally that we've had over the past few days. Yeah, just to emphasize what you were saying, uh, Ben, is that uh, I think a lot of what we've been talking about in the last few minutes, I suspect, is the same stuff they've been talking about around the FOMC table, and that they're seeing that the 10 million jobs, the slowing job growth, we got to get these people back to work. And they're 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 saying, look, we're not going to press the accelerator to the floor now. We'll give it a little more time. We'll see if Congress passes a fiscal stimulus bill, but we're not going to give it that much more time. And then, if necessary, we will push the accelerator to the floor to try and get things moving. Then at that point, so so all of this is related to each other. You know, the the job growth number is what's driving the Fed by saying, I'm not going to do anything now, but I'm ready to soon. And now we're looking over at Congress and going, hey, now that the election's almost complete, probably by early next week it will be, um, are you guys going to pass a stimulus bill or are you not going to pass a stimulus bill? Uh, let us know because we're going to step in if you don't. So that's kind of where I think we are with uh, all three of these stories being tied together. Yeah, I think it's a great summary. <laughs> that was perfect. All right. Well, thank you, Jim and Ben, for your thoughts today. And thank you for our audience for joining us. As a reminder, Arbor Research and Trading is an institutional research and brokerage firm. Our two most prominent research offerings are Bianco Research and Arbor Data Science. To sign up for a free trial of Arbor Research, Bianco Research, and Arbor Data Science, please contact Gus Handler at gus.handler at arborresearch.com. Have a great day.